Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 119 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Chet Richards on the show with us today. Chet is the author of Certain to Win, the strategy of John Boyd applied to business and if we can keep it, which focuses on national security. Chet is a specialist on Oodaloop and all that surrounds this approach that has achieved so much in our world. Let's get into the episode. Chet, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation, Brad. It's always always fun to talk about these things. Uh, it's such an honor. Chet, what's, what's your backstory? Like, what led you into a career in the military and then through that path that we know that you've gone down? Uh, well, my father was career military. He, he was Army, fought World War II, prisoner of the, uh, prisoner of the Japanese, uh, captured on the Philippines, liberated by the Russians in uh, August 1945, and then decided to stay in after the war. But uh, yeah, he, he got out in um, the early 1960s because he decided he, he wanted to teach college. And of course, to do that, you need a terminal degree. So he went back and got his PhD. And while he was going to grad school, I was going to high school. And so that kind of raised in a military family, but it was it was also sort of the Vietnam era. He really did not want me to go into the military. He said it's a different it's a different deal now than it was in World War II, where the survival of the country was at stake. Um, but he left it up to me, and uh, so I finally went into ROTC, got ROTC commission when I got my master's degree, stayed on for two more years to finish my degree, and then. Uh, at that time, 1971, the U.S. Army was shrinking down rapidly. They were pulling out of Vietnam. Um, uh, Nixon had run on a platform of, of getting us out of Vietnam, which he, which he honored. Uh, the Air Force stayed stayed on, as did the Navy and to some extent the Marine Corps. But basically, we pulled out our we were pulling our ground forces out of Vietnam. So we're, whereas two years earlier, the Army was def, desperate for second lieutenants. When I got ready to go on active duty, they said, you know, we don't need you anymore. Get lost going to the reserves, which is quite a shock since I hadn't done anything about, about uh, uh, lining up a job. Mm. Frantic scramble. The one job offer that I got was from an organization I'd never heard of, the Office of the Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Well, I mean, I, I knew who they were, having been an uh, uh, ROTC graduate. Uh, for, for your uh, uh, viewers who are not aware, that's Reserve Officers Training Corps, which is a program for people that are in university they do a four-year program they do a, a summer camp between their junior and and senior years uh and then when they get out they're commissioned with the second uh, as as second lieutenants in the reserve with a reserve uh, uh commitment in my case it was uh, three years as i recall may have been four <laughs> four for me because i got a pilot's license on it. i took an optional program anyway so, I, so there I am in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and I end up in a thing called the Office of Tactical Air in a outfit that at that time was still known as the Office of Systems Analysis. In other words, it was the McNamara's Whiz Kids. And uh, it, had, it uh, was still supposed to be providing um, unbiased advice to the Secretary of Defense with the idea that if you add up all of the hard, firm, uncompromisable requirements from all of the three services and you put them all together you come to roughly the national budget so um you know the entire united states uh so all that had to be squeezed down to fit to within what the secretary of defense and the president figured he could actually get out of congress and so he, he had to turn to an outside group to give him some advice on that that's what that pa and he was so we're sitting there and we're looking at the fact that you have four air forces army navy marine corps and uh uh I, you know, I, I miss somebody, Air Force, five if you want to count the helicopters on, on board the, uh, the Coast Guard, which technically at that time weren't a part of the sec of the uh, Department of Defense. They come under the Treasury Department. Uh, but now it's things have things have changed. We've got all these services and they're buying Air Force and, and, and Navy, both buying Air Force. The Air Force hates the Navy airplanes and <laughs> Navy airplanes got out here off and on and on and on. So. Anyway, and as it turns out, uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, one of the uh, 
one of the people, one of the things that we were looking at was this uh, um, weight to um, compare the performance of two different types of fighters developed by a very obscure uh, colonel in the Air Force down in Florida called John Boyd. He called it energy maneuverability. Until that time, what happened is if you if you ask uh, a fighter pilots, what would you do in this situation? Each of them had their own little bag of tricks. I'd pull up, I'd dive, you know, I'd try to turn inside and something. But nobody could really explain why that that worked. Boyd was the first person to really put it into mathematics, taking into account the performance of the engine, uh, which varies depending on the altitude, depends on, depending on the airspeed it's going, depending on how many Gs it's going, how it's turning, because that affects you know air coming into the engine. Da 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 da. Anyway, so that's how that's how I met John Boyd. Right after I I met him, he went off to uh, uh, La, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Thailand to uh, to command the technically a Royal Thai Air Force base. It was, uh, but the most I guess probably all the planes they were actually American. So there was an American commander of the American forces there. It was John Boyd. And uh, before he could get back, I I left the Pentagon went to work for another government agency. He came back to the Pentagon. Was there a couple more years? Uh, uh, was there through the selection process for the lightweight fighter, which selected the F sixteen over the uh, YF seventeen. As, as the new Air Force uh, Air Force fighter, and then he retired. And meantime, I moved out to California to work for Northrop. And about oh, a year or so later, uh, I, uh, I get a phone call from John, who I, who I really hadn't known hardly at all. I, think I, I met him one time. We went down to his office. But he said, hey, I hear you're a mathematician. And I said, well, you know, several years ago, <laughs> used to be. And he said, hey, I'm writing this paper. I got some mathematics in it. I want you to look, look over it for me. So I did. It was very, very, very obscure stuff, a thing called Gödel's theorem, which all mathematicians know about. But unless you're working in mathematical logic, nobody actually uses. Mm. Um, but it's very famous. It basically says that there are things, there are statements you can make in mathematics that are true, but you cannot construct a proof for them. And then the question is, how do you know they're true? Well, that's... That's what Gertle showed. There are other ways to show that they're that they're true. Their own the set of all things that can be that are true is much, 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 much larger in a, in a rigorous mathematical sense than the set of all statements that you can actually construct proof for. Because a proof is a finite set of logical statements. And when you get to the end of it, it's ah, therefore QED, I've, I've proven this. But there's a whole bunch of other true statements that for a variety of reasons, they tend to fall into the sort of things like uh, uh, if you ask the question, uh, are you still beating your wife? You know, there's no good way to answer that question. And Gertle said, well, you can pose questions like that in mathematics uh, that are that are sort of kind of similar to it. Okay, and Boyd had used that in one in a paper he was writing, and I said, oh, you know, good lord. Okay, <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, the way you stated it's fine. You're not using it in mathematical sense, but mathematics, you're, you're doing it for a problem in, in this case, air-to-air -air combat for NASA. And uh, and then it also in this paper it turned out to be destruction and creation that you're writing. But the way you have set it up and the way you stated it uh, is all correct. It's okay, thanks, I got it. Wow. Um, several years later, I got a copy of the paper and uh, managed to go through it. Um, it's 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 uh, included in the back of Robert Coram's book. Plus, uh, it's on my website if anybody would like to download it. Destruction and creation. And what he's doing there is he basically is saying that all systems, including human systems, contain the seeds of their own destruction. And he explains why that's true. And he said, and then it, the the, uh, the immediate uh, corollary, which makes it so interesting to us, is if that's the case, and if you're in competition with somebody, you can think of it's two systems competing against each other. And if each contains the seeds of its own destruction, why leave that to chance? Why not do something to help that along in the other side? And that's basically Boyd's entire opus of work, 300 and something pages. I counted it all up. <laughs> and uh, and what, 30 something thousand words, anyway, roughly uh, the size of the Sun Tzu book. Uh, if you took all the, all, all the words and most of the translations, maybe twice as that. But, but anyway, it's a very compact body of work, but it's not inconsequential. It's not like saying, well, Boyd never wrote anything. He wrote a tremendous amount. He just didn't go through the formal publishing process. Uh, he just said, here, you know, here it is. Here's what I think. I revised it a hundred times, and here's where I am now. So, yeah. well, that, that was basically it. You know, yeah. you got city beings competing against each other, and if there are, there are in their systems 
particularly in their in their systems that make predictions. If I do this, what's going to happen? There are ways that you things that you can do to screw up that system on the other side. That's amazing, Jet. So, like, it really is amazing. I know you've it's got a amazing that you're the first person to think of it. Yeah, and Jet, you've got this, you know, massive military background with from your father right the way through. Crossed over John Boyd and became part of that sphere of people working on these concepts. Like it's it's crazy that the whole understand that energy and maneuverability piece came up that created like the thought of the F sixteen and looking at lighter planes. But then you've helped Boyd and reviewed the destruction and creation theory, which I understand is it led on to the OODA loop, the OODA loop concept and that whole thinking. Because you may remember what we said, two systems fighting each other. The first is, as, 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 a, as an interesting side note, as it were, to this day, energy maneuverability is taught to uh, taught to fighter pilots. And there's nothing wrong with it. It works fine. However, like Newton's laws of, uh, laws of physics, they work fine. Everything you and I do in most of our everyday life works just fine with Newton. However, it's incomplete. If you rely on Newton, for example, the GPS system on your, on your watch won't work. Uh, wow. for, because that depends on uh, special relativity, the fact that uh, uh, time works differently in the gravitational field at 36,000 miles than it does the gravitational field of the Earth, you know, close, closer to the Earth. Uh, so, uh, but to the extent that, that it models things that happen every day, it works very well. However, oddly enough, it doesn't describe the F-16. Oh, because okay. the F-16, in terms of energy maneuverability, was not as good as the YF-17 that, lost, that it lost to. And at that time, it probably wasn't even as good as the uh, F-15, which, which is a bigger airplane, has two huge engines, big wing. The F-16 has one of the, of the same, basically the same engine, smaller wing. Uh, but the F-16 had a couple of things that the F-15 didn't. It's kind of hard to explain. If you're not a pilot, but basically, if if you're if you're a pilot and you're flying along in your little airplane, that, like the kind that I learned to fly, and you pull back on the stick a little bit and you let it go, the nose will come down and the airplane will come back to nice straight and level flight. You get it too high in a stall, but within a wide, if you push it down, the nose will come back up. If you if you go into a turn and let the controls go, those airplanes are called stable. They're stable systems. If you let them go, they return to a nice stable flight. On the, on the S-16, the way it was originally designed, and to some extent, I understand still even today, although they, 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 the airplane is so heavy and it's, and it's changed some of the, the parameters of it. So it doesn't work. On an F-16, if you pull back on the stick and let it go and just keep going up, in fact, it would accelerate going up. Uh, which, and the same thing, if you push forward on the stick just a little bit and let go, instead of coming back, it would accelerate going back. Now, if you stop and think about it, for air-to-air combat, this is really good. Yeah, it's the airplane just kind of flitter out of the sky. However, it also means that human beings can't fly. Uh. <laughs> so what the human being can do, however, is it can tell the computer what it wants to do. The computer can make sure it doesn't start accelerating out of out of uh, control. And they lost some F-16s right at first when they when they came out, when all of a sudden it went thing went nose down into the ground before the pilot could, could get out of it. The last lawsuit on that was just settled a few years ago. Uh, wow. General Dynamics, I remember when when Lockheed bought General Dynamics fighter business, uh, they had to, uh, there was something about they left the liability with General Dynamics. Wow. Interesting history of it, isn't it? That wasn't taken care of. So John said, okay, this is incomplete. What's going on here? And he said, what it really is, that it's the system that can handle this fast rate of change. In other words, if I can flip this way and then flip back before you can figure out what's going on, I can get in a position where I can do bad things to you before you figure out what's you know what's uh, you know what's happening, and so that's why he ended his paper for NASA. He had a little contract to write a paper for NASA to explain why the behavior of airplanes that were uh, that, uh, why the computer models that tried to describe combat between two airplanes sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. And he figured out it was because sometimes they couldn't capture this idea of a human being able to handle this faster rate of change. Mm. And so he used that paper, his own NASA paper. And again, there's a copy of that out on my, on my website if people would like it. Uh, with key who can handle the fastest rate of change survives. Couldn't say when because that depends on what really on what the other side is doing. Classical Sun Tzu said you you can avoid victory, you can avoid defeat, but victory is up to the other side. 
and uh, that's kind of what he was saying. But uh, but if you survive and stay in it, you know, it's uh, as a fighter pilot, that's that's basically you know as good as you're going to do. Well, so uh, I got to think, rate, fa handling fast rate of change. You know, what does that mean? And he he generalized it, and he said, well, it's like he said, if you can operate at a faster tempo or rhythm. Than your opponent said, or better yet, operate inside their observe, orient, decide, act loop. Then you know, you'll have an you'll have an advantage. Opportunities will arise to um, to end the conflict on your terms. Maybe not right away. You may have to take them step by step, driving deeper and deeper into a hole, something like that. But you'll be able to do things that he won't be able to. Uh, you know, to respond. He called that operating inside the Ugaloo. He never really defined at that point what an Ugaloo was. I heard him when he was giving some of these early presentations, he actually defined it as observe, then orient, then decide, and then act. In fact, he was defined it that way up until at least 1989. Wow. But by around 1990, he realized it really couldn't work that way. Because of the an OODA loop going around like this to make decisions, first, it's just too slow. And second, it's too easy to get it to hang up in some in some place. And third, what does it really mean? You're going through orientation faster than another side? Does this mean we're going to skip, skip on the orientation step when he had already said that orientation is the most important part of the OODA loop? If that's true, then it might pay at times to slow down and get it right, you know? Rather, and, and all these these problems with making uh, um, decisions by going around in a circular loop began to uh, began to surface. So, he, and by that time he was he was getting deeper into the Japanese stuff. What the Japanese were saying it's really all about keeping the picture of the world, what they call right perceptions, an old Buddhist Buddhist concept, uh, keeping your picture of the world more accurate than that of the other side, and that actions will then flow from that. If you've done thousands and thousands of hours and hours of training, you train these actions to flow. And they said, uh, uh, real combat is very fast. You just don't have time to stop and sit down and start comparing alternatives and doing things like that. You'll end up with a sword in your gut first. So the, you've got to be able to keep your, your view of the world, uh, your, your perception of reality, you know, crystal clear at all times, and then have programmed into it things that you can do to influence that perception, and particularly to screw up the other side, taking you back to experience. So that's basically how the OODA loop came about. So you notice the OODA loop diagram now has got this big orientation block right in the middle with all kinds of stuff inside it. We used to argue for hours over whether there should be dotted lines or dashed lines, or some of them dotted, some of them dashed, arrowheads on both sides, because Boyd didn't want to get into things like uh, um, uh, past experiences influencing our genetic heritage. Current experiences influencing our genetic heritage. Uh, Lamarck, whatever, whatever uh, I remember the name, guy, the name of Soviet guy who's yeah. going to create the new Soviet, you know, anyway. Elisinkoism. Um, and as it turns out, as an aside, it is possible for the environment now and experiences. They don't influence the DNA, but they can influence the epigenetic material, how the DNA is expressed. But let's shove all that to the side. So, yeah. anyway, orientation. And there's orientation serves two functions in this. The first is it controls action. So you think of that loop, come, that, 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 that thing coming out the side and down, boom, just like the Japanese. But it also has this loop embedded down in the bottom. Decision, hypothesis, you know, orientation, hypothesis, test, orientation, hypothesis. So anyway, that's all of that kind of lit, fell from his original idea Basically, why is the F-16 better than the 17? Why was I able to be 42nd Boyd? Because uh, he didn't really use much energy. He pulled the airplane up in an out-of-envelope thing and brought it back by a very sudden, abrupt maneuver that people weren't expecting. So that's kind of Yeah, it's amazing. And yet, so really now I'm yeah. hearing that the observe is now really described as having that view on, in business, I guess you'd call it that view on, the current state and the vision in in military you're talking that view of you know orientate sorry orientate that view on what's going on at all times like you mentioned the japanese yeah. yeah and then you've got the you know the decide and act that looks links off of that and creates that scientific type that loop of constant well, adaption however you want to describe it yeah there. to get inside yeah, the enemy's position and win the day which sorry very, very good point. 
And this gets into another one that you pointed out here about uh, about lessons from the military. Uh, conflict really occurs in you know in kind of various different levels. There's individual one-on-one -on -one conflict, and individual one-on-one -on -one conflict, as the Japanese pointed out, it's basically orientation to action. You know, to to uh, uh, to quote the late. Secretary of Defense twice over, Donald Rumsfeld, you fight with the army you got. You go into con into combat with now you still you're doing still doing some learning, but it's still using the repertoire, the the actions that you have rehearsed and practiced and learned how to use and and can and can uh, uh, and can use without dropping the sword, uh, you know, almost instantaneously. All right. However, larger organizations and particularly business or organizations, they learn. And and when you get to the foreign standpoint of business, uh, I think all of a sudden the shift goes, starts to begin shifting away from that uh, implicit guidance and control loop down into the down into the learning loop. So that in some sense, corporations that are competing with each other, you generally compete with of course more than one. It's kind of a space of corporations. It's essentially a conflict uh, competition between learning systems. Uh, you know, who can, as sort of like with Steve Jobs, who can put a conceptualize which, what way the customer might be made to go and then come up with products that, that services that sort of fit, fit that. Didn't always get it right, but he learned very quickly. You know, the, the Mac cube didn't last very long on the market. Neither did the Newton, you know, that sort of kind of thing. So, ah. so it turned out to be a, a, a system that, 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 that could, that could learn, that could experiment, could, as Boyd, uh, called it in uh, Patterns of Conflict, probe and test the environment and learn from that extremely rapidly. And that gets into that idea of, you know, going around the loop more fast, you know, faster than the other. It's really getting your orientation to more closely match what's going on out in the, uh, in the real world. Because what your orientation is going to do is it's going to make predictions. Uh, it's going to make very, it, the farther out you go, the less valid, which is, uh, uh, but the real prediction is what I do next. You know, what way do I want to go? If you're in the car business, you know, what what can I come out with next year that will, or two years from now that will say, see, I have Toyota in their you know famous one year, two year cycle very very quickly. You know, being able to come and stick a product in 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 and you know kind of see if there's a niche out there and then be able to uh, to exploit it. So uh, in that sense. I think it's better to that 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 circular loop kind of does work a little better for companies than it does than it does for um, organizations in a military type conflict. So long as you understand that the purpose of that going around, big part of it is to ensure that you're constantly testing and revising and um, um, tweaking, you know, your orientation. You should think your orientation as being a model. It's you know kind of going. You're doing this all the time. What you're going is you're you're. It's it's observing. What it's really doing and observing is it is looking for mismatches. It's making little predictions and it's comparing the results. It's trying things out and it's comparing and and it's tweaking. Uh, yeah, you know, from as customers. It, as it, so that's that's sort of my philosophy on using the OODA loop for 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 corporations. Now, yes. raises another question though. And, and you sort of you sort of raised this earlier. Is it sounds good? What kind of organizations can actually do it? Yeah, because oh, yeah, because Chet, yeah, you mind me right. saying like I can see that the a lot of organizations they're fighting for stability. It's like they're fighting to not have that because the inertia of the company is people often don't want change. They just want the same thing done day in day out. They just want normality. But we're saying yes. that to out compete yeah. and out fight. It actually comes down to the speed of the adaption with a constant observation and orientation on customers and knowing your competition, sort of having that view. What what's your thoughts on that, mate? Yeah, yeah that's that's uh, that's absolutely right. Um, the thing where the military has a big advantage in a sense is if you don't do it as well as your opponents, bad things tend to happen to you, and they tend to happen to you fairly immediately. Whereas uh, businesses can linger on, I think, for long periods of time, kind of a slow motion disaster. So, uh, for example, um, uh, if you look at General Electric, 
which is, you know, dominated the Dow just not too many years ago when you stop to think about it. Now it's getting ready to not exist at all. It was delisted from the Dow, I think, back in 2018 from the, uh, uh, um, from the Dow Industrials. And uh, now it's getting ready to split into three companies. Um, and, uh, and the American automobile industry, it just goes on and on and on. They get into uh, they get into these niches where it's possible to survive for a long period of time at, at lower and lower and lower performances until finally a competitor or competitors can rise up. I mean, even the Japanese took them 25 years to really begin to threaten Detroit, um, and according to you know using Kaichiono's. Uh, and it really wasn't. Uh, they really weren't successful until the uh, the Arab oil embargo of 1973, which was really the black swan event. Uh, talent he may decide whether it was a black swan event or not but from the standpoint of american automobile manufacturing it was a black swan event because after that everything changed and if you look the uh, uh the japanese particularly toyota and um, as it was called Datsun at that time and honda people then had to try those cars because of their gas mileage and they discovered when they did they were wonderful cars they worked great they didn't break they were fun to drive they were quiet you know and the rest is uh, the rest is history so uh, it's, it gets into, I think the problem that you said is when you get into these environments, there's no selection mechanism for a long period of time. So you don't get selected out until all of a sudden something happens. You get one of these step function, punctuated equilibrium, as Stephen Jay Gould called it, uh, that, then, uh, that then forces the change. In other words, it's not gradual kind of change. It's, it's, it's more like this and then that. And it's that that gets you. Um, and it's very difficult for who could, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, everybody was poo-pooing electric cars, you know, General yeah. Motors made, a, made one or two and kind of, eh, it's not going to work, nobody wants these things, you know, and even until about three or four years ago, the Jap the German automakers were saying, nobody wants these things, you know, they're not fun to drive, they don't have any range and all that, and then, of course, Black Swan events <laughs> hits in the person of Elon Musk, and again, the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, I did an auto show a couple of days ago and saw a BMW i8. Uh, you can Google it. Magnificent machine, hybrid, as it were. And I think they made 200 of them. That was a very, very limited run. And BMW, they could see nobody wants these things <laughs> and all that. Very shortly after that, they started cranking out Model 3s. Mm -hmm. So very shortly after that, they started building Gigafactory Berlin. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, so it's it's the I'm almost beginning to believe that or, that above a certain size organizations can't change, um, and uh, I'm I'm willing to entertain the notion of exceptions to that rule. But see, people say, well, like, what about Toyota? It exempt, you know, it existed before World War II, and I'm thinking, aha! But what Toyota had was the great good fortune of Japan losing World War II. Japan won World War II; they'd still be making looms, and that'd probably be about it. You know, and they'd, they'd be good looms. Be cool stuff, but uh, you know, uh, to this day, but by by being forced to do something, it was almost like they got a chance to start over because, as Taichi owner describes it, they could only get enough money for you know to build new cars to the extent they were selling the ones they were so sell a car, use that money you know to build your next car, and so they were almost forced to learn to learn just in time, forced to invent to drive waste out of their system. But even that, according to Ono, took them 25 years to do it. Yeah. So, and if, and if you look at what they did, they not only, they not only revised their production system and Ono in, in his book, Toyota Production System, um, very, very explicit on this point. And even though I think there's a lot of propaganda in that book, uh, I, I think he's exactly right on this one, which is they had to change the whole culture of Japanese manufacturing at that time. And when you look at the at the attributes that he talks about that this new culture has, and then you go over and read Boyd or Martin Van Krevel or some of the other people that were looking at, well, what kind of culture made the German army so good in the opening days of World War II? They, they line up almost right on top of each other. Yeah. You know, mutual trust, uh, the designation of importance, driving out waste for the Toyota production system, for example, uh, the uh, idea of finger spits and get uh, intuitive competence, uh, you know, uh, in what you do, um, and just they just they, like the, the the famous back in the good old days when Toyota was really making progress, they had to you know we don't fire anybody. Uh, or we don't have layoffs that fire with non-performance, of course. We don't have if we hire you, we intend to keep you for the for the career. It's, 
uh, sort of thing. Uh, and uh, a German army starting for 100,000 people uh, when Hitler took power in early 1933. Um, and this small group, and the idea was then they, 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 they added on, but they had this huge acculturation process, the training process that it took to get into the German army, very, very similar conceptually to the training process it took to become hired by, by uh, Toyota. Yeah. Uh, very long involved uh, process, which Toyota regarded as an investment, not a cost. Achieving results and performance in business while reducing pressure and workload is where it's at. John Boyd, Chet Richards and others' work has played a major part in helping people and organisations achieve this. Many models like Agile have had contribution from those guys. The first step is to free up your time so you can then apply it moving forward to things to help the organisation, yourself and others more broadly. To help you achieve this, we posted our time optimization program on the Enterprise Excellence Podcast website. The program provides a quick, easy approach to help you free up time, focus on what's important now, and really get back in and make a big difference. Hope it helps. And I see too, like with both the German army and the Toyota, a lot of that training and development, yes, there was some external training, but a lot of it was internal, that they were training based on their systems, based on constant learning, based on development. Leaders were the trainers. Of the German was, uh, and it was, once you got into the RC, what it, what, what it was, and again, Martin Van Corral in his book, Fighting Power, describes it uh, you know, quite well and in gory detail. Uh, about how the system worked, but basically you came in and you came into a training uh, unit and the people that were running that unit, many of those were were from the unit you were you were eventually going to join and they were recovering from wounds or they had to, they were just seconded back to that. They trained you up and then they brought you back uh, together. And then once you got back into the unit, instead of just parceling you out onesie twosies, so that, as in the American system, as uh, as it was described, you die among strangers. They took great they took great uh, place to try to integrate you into that unit to make you uh, uh, an, an effective part of the overall unit. Very much like the Navy SEALs, for example, and other special operators, you go through this hideous selection process. You know, in the SEALs, that only about anywhere from twenty to maybe in a really really good class, thirty percent survive. But even after you graduate that. You go out to a unit, it's still about 18 months before they really feel you're, you're, you're not going to be more of a liability than an asset by taking you out onto a, a mission. With Toyota, the way it was done uh, up until they got this big growth thing that nearly killed them back in the early uh, you know, aughts, uh, you, you had to go through a program at basically at your own expense. Uh, at uh, I can't remember how long it was, but it was it was it was quite long to act to basically learn how to operate the equipment, how how the system worked, and, and all of that. Then, if you were if, if if you were selected, then Toyota would bring you in and give you another training program in their factories at their expense before they ever let you anywhere near the factory floor. Um, all the companies that I worked with here were in manufacturing. Their philosophy was. You know, we're hiring you for your expertise. So, uh, you know, uh, if you don't have it, then we'll just hire somebody else. Get out of the factory floor and get to work. Yeah, <laughs> you're not good enough. Right. Know, so. I know, Chet. And this this conversation we're having right now really links back to what I heard you talking about earlier with what Boyd was talking about, but also the Japanese, where it's about being able to observe and orientate and have that constant view on your environment but the patterns and habits and skills you've got have prepared you to be able to be bloody good at in that fight. Well, we're discussing about learning and cultural systems that really skill someone up to then get them in the environment to be really skilled, like a good cricketer or a good football player or baseball player, and then basically create that constant learning environment with that centricity on the customer to allow you to keep getting better in learning and going forward. Yes, no, it's exactly right. Years ago, many years ago, uh, Tom Peters made a suggestion that everybody in your organization, uh, from the uh, uh, people who do the maintenance on the factory floor, sweepers on the factory floor, who now would probably be working for a different organization entirely, and they just outsource it, all the way up to the uh, to the C-suite, should make at least two customer visits a year. And I always thought that was a great idea. You know, it's fantastic. You know, go out and actually 
actually meet the customer and see and uh, uh, you know it's, it's not only good for for morale but also when you see what they're doing and how they're actually using it and what they like and they don't like and all that even the person down on the factory floor can say you know, we're spending an inordinate amount of time cleaning crap where if we just if we just did it right in the first place there wouldn't be all this cleaning necessary the final product would be cleaner and better and so, and so, and so forth it's a big deal in the airplane industry now with fog foreign foreign object damage you may have uh, uh, read uh, that on the last Crew Dragon, it was uh, launch. Uh, SpaceX was late, delayed by a day because it was getting ready to close it up. Somebody noticed a human hair, a human hair one millimeter wide, in in the hat, lying in the hatch cover. So they canceled the launch, <laughs> and they went back in and they first they cleaned that off, but they also did root cause analysis to figure out where in the world that hair could have come from. But if you're going to have, what is that, 180 successful launches in a row, that's the mentality. But the trick is not to have the best inspection in the world so you find all the hairs. The trick is construct your system so the hairs don't appear in the first place. And that's yeah. the essence of the river, of course. Drive out the waste so that you don't have to mop up, you know, other waste by the time it actually gets to the customer. Of course, the greatest waste of all is to build a product that doesn't sell. Because then all that value you added to it immediately turns to waste. You know, yeah. poof, immediately yeah. becomes waste. And that gets you into the customer. And that's why getting it, there's a story in um, in the book, uh, Toyota Way. Uh, Jeff, is Jeff Lucas that wrote it? Yeah. Uh, who, uh, yeah, very, very good book. Because he actually had a lot of experience with Toyota. But he talks about when they were doing, uh, when they, they came out with a van years and years ago. I don't know what it was called, a Sienna or something. It was uh, a Previa. And it was kind of a flop. It's kind of, I knew a guy who had one. He said, well, other than the fact that it's Toyota, it doesn't break. It's a piece, you know, it's <laughs> So when they got ready to redo it, I think you can go to the Santa. They, they, the guy who was going to run that effort didn't speak a lot of English, but he, was, he had a little. And he took off. I don't remember. He came to the States and he spent months here just going all around, uh, you know, trying to get a feel, finger spitzing the fool, as we call it, for what, how Americans use these things, what they're going to do with them what they liked, what they didn't like, and all that. And then they went back and they built, I think at that time it was the Previa, it, it turned out to be a world beater. Uh, because at that point now, he, he, he had brought that external knowledge into his knowledge of, the, of already extensive knowledge of the Toyota production system, was able to marry them together and produce a uh, produce a vehicle that provided, you know, did the, the best of both worlds. Just building a better Previa were not, you know, was not going to do it. So I think the idea is that you you have your expertise in your area, but as you're going up through the system, you're getting more and more exposure to doing it right to the customer, to the outside, you know, to the outside world, and also to the competitors. That's why I said put into a certain to win. I think it, uh, one of the telling events for me was when they asked Bill Gates back in the early days of uh, MP3 players um, or uh, solid state MP3 players, you know, when. Um, and the, iP the iPod was in its second, uh, I think, generation at that point. And they asked Bill Gates, said, do you have an iPod? And he said, no, I'm not an iPod user, but we have this thing called the, the Zoom. <laughs> it's just going to knock. It's going to be really, really great, really, really, really fantastic. You know, and all the years since then, I've never met anybody that actually owned the Zoom. <laughs> Apparently, not very many people actually did. Uh, because it took to great lengths not to understand what it was that, that, that people liked about it and then to internalize that and then to make a prediction, you know, of what might, might, and then try a little out and, and go on from, uh, and go on from there. It was just, I know what everybody wants, so we'll make one and I, I'm not going to dirty my hands by touching it. And um, I noticed in, in, for a long time, and they may still do it in uh, Detroit, Back when the Japanese invasion was really starting, they used to have signs up, no Japanese cars allowed in the parking lot. Well, that's really great. You know, I would, have, I would require all of my executives to have a Japanese car. Yeah. And their yeah. company car would be a Japanese car about half the time. Uh, yeah. know, so you can really understand what it is that you're up, uh, you know, that you're up against. So I really uh, hear, Chet, in the conversation that, like, there's two parts to it. You know, there's a, there's a whole teamwork and culture part and skill part but then there's this part which is how fast can you keep learning and adapting learning and adapting through the OODA loop you know and that really needs to be customer centric and the faster you can do it and the more frequent you can do the loop the more chance you can get inside your competition and outgun them and yet i know the work that you and john boyd and the team have done 
like I'm involved a lot in the world of Agile and Scrum. And mm-hmm. I know yes. that that whole industry idolizes the OODA loop and the um, everything that you've written and John wrote and everything that's come out. So you look at companies like Apple, Amazon, all these companies that are using Agile Scrum, there's a big link back to all that work that you've done, which is amazing. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you look at some of the fastest, most adaptive companies in the world, what they're doing connects in some way back to what you and John, the rest of the team have done, mate. It's it's crazy when you think about it. Flabbergasted by what's uh, by, by how well his ideas have uh, you know have taken hold, um, and uh, I, so I think well, a lot of times why don't why don't what are the the real barriers to adopting this? And I think you put your hand on it. Or as a friend of mine talking about why you can't reform the military, he said because the people that would have to reform it are the generals and the senior civil servants and the and. They don't see anything wrong with the current system. Made them generals. What can you know possibly? And the same thing in uh, in Iran. The same thing in uh, a civilian life. Can't be anything really wrong with the system that made me a vice president. But it's, they're the people that are going to have to do the uh, do the changes. So I said sometimes might be better just to just to let nature take its course. Uh, <laughs> don't try to turn General Motors into Tesla. Let Tesla be Tesla, and General Motors can can come up with something you know great. But uh, don't 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 even try to uh, you know try to make that transformation because you're just going to frustrate yourself. You're gonna you're going to chew up a lot of what they can call shareholder value, um, i.e. the price of the stock is going to go way down, and you're not really going to come out with anything uh, substantial uh, that customers are really going to want. So this idea of somehow getting the customer input into your organization, I think, is, is really the key thing. And I think it starts first with wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, most organizations really don't. They're very happy coming into work every day, particularly the senior levels, very happy with being treated like senior managers, as they imagine generals are treated in the military. And they're not too far off, incidentally. Um, it's uh, And if people tell you uh, that you're a, you have godlike powers and they treat you like you have godlike powers and they do this year in and year out, certain number of percent of people are going to start believing that in fact that they do. Yeah. And that's, that's the last step before the company, uh, a company collapses. Like we say, you know, bad news, mismatches, as Boyd talked about, are the only thing that's actually going to provide any substantial change to your or tweak your orientation model are these mismatches. And it's exactly what the decision makers wall themselves off from. Uh, because mismatches are are painful, particularly if, if you if a mismatch of something that you you were involved in, and now it's pretty clear that it's not working. You know, that can be very. It takes a very unusual uh, senior manager to uh, to react well to that. There are a few. Steve Jobs was one. Steve had no particular problem in killing things if it, if it saw that it wasn't going to work. I understand he had quite a temper, but that it wasn't in that. It was in more down, more down in the engineering, uh, in the product development area. Um, but he had no superconscious at all at, at uh, doing an experiment, learning from it, and going on. Yeah. So uh, that was a clear, a, a big thing uh, for him. So I think it gets down to. Most large organizations really don't want to change. And it may not be nefarious. It may even be smaller. In most any, in particularly a small entrepreneurial organization, just making it to next month can be a huge, a huge challenge. You know, getting enough customers, closing enough sales, being able to profitably execute on those sales and just make keeping that system going. Nobody is really putting the sphere punk, just boy before in other words, the emphasis on how do we make this go better. How do we, uh, you know, how do we, what do we have a system for that matter? And and how do we actually improve it? And I've I've done some work with with smaller companies that were that were kind of as we say in the airplane business, they're behind the power curve. It's possible in airplanes to get your nose up so high and the engine working so high that even adding more power to it isn't going to get you out of it. The only thing you can possibly do is go. And so you say you're behind the power, and if you don't do something, you're going to stall right into the ground, even though the engine is is going full blast. And it's the same thing. Everybody's working, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you're not getting anywhere, sort of thing. Somebody needs to stand, you know, stand back and say, well, why is this not working? What yeah. is going on? What do we need to improve? What, do, do we even have a system? You know, how do we improve this system? Yeah. And uh, that's it's the, few, the companies that can make that transition over 
uh, are the ones that then go ahead and thrive and become, as Jim uh, Collins told it, good to, good to great. But yeah. I understand it's just extremely hard to do when you're yeah. consumed day to day problems of operating a um, a successful business. So you know, I, I understand that that's extremely tough. But the ones that do figure out a do way to do it. Now, one good thing about all this, and you asked about you know doing the Ubers and all that, and there's a favorite uh, quote of John Boyd's was that you don't have to do it perfectly. All you have to be is better than anybody else. And he was he got it yeah. when he was talking about fighting at night. Um, there were very, very few units that liked to fight at night because fighting at night is extremely confusing. However, like John said, quoting one of the American generals who actually worked for Patton, who hate fight, hated fighting at night, by the way, uh, but this general, uh, when he was explaining it to Patton, Patton was saying, you know, isn't it all just confusion and chaos? And the guy said, yes, but the enemy is more confused, and to him it's more chaotic than it is to me. I can do it better than he can, therefore I have an advantage. Yeah. And Boyer said, boy, it's perfect, you just got to do it better than your, comp you know, than your competition. So, um, I uh, you know, encourage people that said, yeah, it's difficult to do. But the nice thing about these philosophies, uh, Boyd's philosophy, maneuver warfare in the Marine Corps and parts of the military, throughout the production system, all these things that rely on this is that they have a, an underlying philosophy is that, and as they call it, no effort is wasted. There are some things where if you don't, they say, well, it didn't work because you didn't do it exactly like this. Or yeah, you didn't. You didn't quite do this way, so it so it failed, so it didn't work. But if you retain me as a consultant for another year, I'll I'll fix that for you. In all of these philosophies, if you do it some, you get some benefit. You keep doing it, you get more benefit. All you have to do is get to the level where you're doing it better than your competition, and uh, and and you'll be and you'll be successful. You may win them all, but you'll win enough. Now, another philosophy that I would I would rec highly recommend to your people, most of them are probably very familiar with it, is. Talib's notion of anti-fragility, of which operating inside the OODA loop is a special case of it where you're doing uh, competition basically against thinking organizations or thinking beings competing with other thinking beings. And the big difference is now what you do over here can actually affect what's going on inside their decision-making process. Uh, but the idea of a probe and test, trying these little experiments at very low cost until you, until you hit the big one, uh, is is exactly what operating inside the probe and test, probe and test, probe and test. The guy gets confused, then you can punch, then you can punch through and exploit. But don't try that until you've got him sufficiently confused. Almost a direct quote from Miyamoto Musashi, by the way, 1645, Book of Five Rings. Another thing you're, I'm sure most of your uh, viewers here will be, uh, be well aware of. So that notion of anti-fragility, and you can think of it as what you want. Everybody has some fragility. What you want is your opponent, your competitors, to be more fragile than you are. Nobody's perfect, but if they're more fragile than you are, eventually you'll hit that 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 black swan and be able to exploit. You'll be able to come out with you know really great fuel efficient cars faster than they will. You'll be able to develop battery powered vehicles that that people want to buy more rapidly than uh, than they will. Sorts of sorts of things. So that's a a, a very 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 powerful very, very powerful notion. I think Italic really really hit on something. It's not like he invented it. Uh, 19, uh, what was it? Uh, what are you talking about? 80 something or another, 84, 85, 80, 87. Tom Peters wrote Thriving on Chaos. which is exactly, <laughs> for, close enough, they could argue the difference. But when you figure the subtitle of the anti-fragile book is things that benefit from disorder, i.e. Yeah. thriving on chaos. And uh, I think Talib thought about it. He came out in a different way and, 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 and came up Peter's book is kind of all over the place. Polly really does give you a framework that you can you can use that you can build upon, and it's, it's I think it's very very similar uh, uh, to what Boyd did or this concept of operating inside the loop. Yeah, it's I, it all interlinks, doesn't it? It all interlinks. Yeah. Yeah, very highly recommend uh, uh, Talib's stuff. Now, again, like Boyd said, don't take any of this stuff as as gospel. He said, if you're going to take my stuff as some kind of dogma, take it out and burn it. Um, presentation I made several years ago, I made a quote from um, one of the sutras of the Buddha. So we're talking at least roughly the turn of the first millennium, zero BC, maybe back to 400, 450 BC. It's hard to know. There's there's virtually no actual documentation on the life of the Buddha from the time of the Buddha's life. It, most of it dates from the time of the Mayuran uh, Empire, uh, Chandra, uh, Gupta, uh, and uh, Ashoka, 
his son, grandson, I remember all this kind of stuff, where, where, where that documentation, and our written documentation of the sutras date from about that same period, which is now known as the Pali, the Pali canon. But anyway, having said that, very, very old. And one of the things he said in, in, in one of the sutras was the same, don't take any of the stuff as gospel, including what I said. Don't believe it just because I said it. As far as I know, the only founder of any religion, religion, if that's what Buddhism is anywhere in the world, that said, try it yourself experience it yourself and then make your own decision. I did it. I tried it. This is what I got, but you got to do it before it works. And that's very, very much in line with Boyd's philosophy. And that's how I, I would encourage your, your, your people to read Boyd, read me, read Talib, any of these people, uh, absorb their ideas, see where they're coming from, and then put it into your own experience and then start trying things and start, start experimenting with it and start learning from the results. And, um, and yeah. I think that is eventually the way. Fail fast is a, a very good, uh, a very good mantra. Silicon Valley. If as you're failing fast, you're actually learning something yes. from, these, you know, from these failures. Fail fast uh, and learn. It's a big point about that. You know, fail fast only works if you, if you're actually learning something from them. Otherwise, you're just chewing up time and um, and capital and other people's time uh, yeah. at a rapid clip. Anyway, no, well, that's that's great advice. <laughs> Yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, what would be your? I'm seeing that really is your tip to business, isn't it? It's learn as we've been talking about, and then adapt your system and your way to. But some of your effort, if, if not, in the higher up you go, perhaps it should. And the CEO's job might be all of it, or 99 percent of it, on trying to understand how to make your organization work better. And I think you, the kind of stuff that you hit in the Agile community, what little I understand of Scrum, I've done a fair amount of work with the Lean Kanban uh, folks. I think they've got an interesting methodology. By the way, it ends, the final step is anti-fragile. So you can see it. And they're very influenced by Boyd. Uh, um, um, several of David Anderson's works mentioned him. And I think he has a good, and his folks have a good understanding. So there are things out there that you can, that, that, that you can do. It's, and again, Talib, Boyd, all these people say it's in the experience, it's in the doing. The OODA loop ends in act. It begins in observe, but it ends in act. If it doesn't get the get to act at some point, then it's all navel gazing, as Boyd called it. He was not into navel gazing. Yeah. The whole purpose of the OODA is act. And I think so, you know, and, and maybe I don't so if you're if somehow you gotta get a little bit ahead of the power curve if you're in one of these companies that's that's consumed with we're just making it through the next week. Uh, somehow, somehow or another, and it probably varies with the company, you've got to free up a little bit of time to think about these things. And uh, and then yeah. try, try changing things a little bit and get other people involved in it. I would recommend starting with finger spits and graffiti uh, because that's where Toyota started, it's where, where uh, the Germans started. In other words, with the confidence in what you're doing now. Uh, even if you may not be doing it the final version, people are proud of what they can do now, uh, then they're not as threatened to go on to the next step. Eventually, when you get higher up, finger spits and get fooled becomes the ability to deal with a, a chaotic environment, with when they, uh, the term commonly associated with Rommel, because it was it said that he had this magical sense to, of being able to feel the flow of the battle. Uh, whether he did or not, he had, he had a lot of practice in it. But what, he, uh, but what it was, it was, he was good at what he was doing, and the higher up an organization, the more it involves things that are unpredictable, like what the customer will buy, what the competitor is going to come up with. And it's, that's what Steve Jobs kind of had that that feel. He wasn't always right, but he was right often enough that I'm yeah. talking to you now. <laughs> hey, Jeff, we come back to Rommel on that? Because, like, I love military history, and the Australians came up against Rommel a fair bit, you know, yes, in the Middle yeah. East. There's and one thing I'd say about Rommel, he had a finger on the pulse in the battle, but he was barely back behind where the bullets and bombs were dropping. Oh, he was usually flying over the line. He, he taught himself to fly. What is it, a Pfizer stork, some kind of some kind of little airplane? In fact, there's stories where he flew over the, uh, a German Osman. They weren't they weren't moving fast enough. He dropped a thing on him and said, "Stop moving, or I'm coming down." <laughs> so start moving, brother. I'm coming down. Apparently, that really happened. Yeah, lead. You have to lead from the front, and that, and particularly in the military. Uh, and that was something that he was very good at. Uh, another guy who was uh, very good at it uh, was um, I remember the guy's name now. A field field marshal Eric uh, von Manstein, and he wrote a book called Lost Battles, which again is uh, Lost Victories. 
which is a, a lot of propaganda in there. But he does talk about, oddly enough, in the Kursk battle, uh, coming into the Crimea, of all things, when the Germans were invading the Crimea. Uh, and he talked about why he was right there at the front. And he said there's several reasons. For one thing, is it was getting really, really tough. And if you look, if you go today to Google Earth or Google Maps and look at the topology, the topography of the northern Crimea, where it attaches to Kherson province there in southern, uh, whether you... I'm not going to get involved in whether it's Ukraine or no. Russia, but we're attached to the landmass there. Uh, yeah, it's just this is not a good time to get to, to get involved in that. If you look at it, it is hideous. It's lots of, of little lakes and marshes and things, and you really can't do a blitzkrieg operation. And so von Ramstein said, I was right there, right on the front lines, partly to motivate the troops, but partly as they brought prisoners in. I wanted to look in their eyes, figure look in our eyes, and try to get, use my fingerprints and be fool who was going to break first. And he said, as long as I felt that the other side was going to break before we did, I kept the operation going. As it turned out, eventually it was successful. But the only way for him to determine that was to be right up on the front line where he could sense how the battle was uh, going. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means um, uh, for business. I know people have tried to interpret it in a number of different ways. Part of it is you need to, of course, develop a feel or a sense for how your factory is going. So you get things like the Ono Circle, for example. Uh, and uh, partly it's a CEO, a sense for how our our, our, our products are going, how our development is going, how we're doing these. Are we coming up routinely? Are we in second place with the opponent? Uh, not opponents, you should never use that word, with our competitors. Uh, and is that good or bad? Could be good if they're, if what you come up with is a lot better than theirs, the market shifts in your favor. Uh, or it could be bad if you're always like a zoom, you're always coming in second and then having an enormous flop on your hands. The, the iPod was not, of course, the first MP3 player by a long shot. I had a thing called a Rio Cali, uh, which cost about half as much as an iPod. I think it held 35 songs and it was a disaster to try to program. But it, but it worked. You could take it on a run with you. It did kind of, did kind of work. So, uh, yeah. um, Get str but more strongly but, connected but to the customer. Yeah. So, so really, I'm, I see, yeah, like whether it's that as a Rommel or as one of those great leaders who are at the front line, you know, understand what's happening at the front in your value streams or where you're creating value, but also yeah. get connected to the customer, understand what's it's happening in that market. Thing like Agile, for example, Scrum, is it working? You know, how are your, how are your people? Are they are they really enthusiastic at doing it, or are they going through? Some of them, you know, are they going through the motions? Are they are they are they really using it to the to the extent that it could be used? You can, and however, it's also if you go down there in purpose on, per, uh, on in person and start mucking around, then you get the Heisenberg. <laughs> all of a sudden, if you can fire people and you show up in an organization, all of a sudden the attention changes to you. So you have to have ways of uh, of getting a feel for what's going on that don't that don't upset what's actually going on uh, yeah. and that's a whole a whole other issue avoid the royal tour avoid the royal tour hey yeah. Yeah, what's i really appreciate the knowledge anyway. sorry what? anyway thank you very much it's been a, it's been fun uh yeah. i certainly wish you the best of luck yeah uh, as an aside wish you the best of luck in trying to edit all of this yeah. and yet one question I've got, mate, as a, which I ask all guests, final one is, what's been a recent insight for you, mate? Like, what's been something that has sort of really been a recent learning for you? I think if I, you know, I go back to Talib's thing, I've, I've known about him for years, you know, Black Swan and all, and all that. Never read any of his books. Watched some of his YouTube videos. Uh, but uh, somebody said, you really should take the effort to really kind of see where it's coming from. He said, because I really think it's the same as operating inside the OODA loop, but just in a different environment, maybe a more general. So I finally bought this damn book, sat down, reading page after page. Where did he find that? Right all this. It's, am it's amazing. And, uh, but I think he's got a lot of good insights into that. And picking for some of the stuff that he came up with, looking at some of the stuff that Boyd uh, came up with, looking what's going on out in the world. Now, things like, you know, Agile, Scrum, Lean Kanban, those sorts of things that have come up years after Boyd died. Uh, there's lots and lots of interesting stuff happening out there. Uh, and I'm happy to, to kind of be watching it from the clubhouse, as we say in the, in the golf world. I don't play golf, but I understand that, uh, that, that metaphor has spent a fair amount of time in clubhouses. And, you know, watching the action from the pub, whatever. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and uh, saying, you know, this is really, I think it's its starting to take off now. I think they're, we're really beginning to, 
to do as, again, as Talib said, people are beginning to understand this notion of anti-fragile, that it's better to try things and learn from them uh, than it is to try to plan your way to success. Now, there are people who have been writing papers for years on the problems with strategic planning. About every 10 years, Harvard was a very famous one. I forget who wrote it. Harvard reprints it about every 10 years. I think I have a copy on my, on my hard drive here somewhere. Uh, so we've known for years, you, know, you plan into the future, but the future goes where it wants. Uh, but we also, this old expression in the military, an, oper an unplanned operation is highly unlikely to succeed. That's true and it's, and it's not true. It's true in the sense that an unplanned operation, if you just tell everybody, hey, go charge the enemy, is probably going to get a lot of people killed. On the other hand, there are a number of times in the military where operations started and it seemed to break down. People on the ground took the initiative and pressed forward and were successful. The um, the Normandy invasion is a classic uh, case of that. That first that first day at Normandy would not have been successful had not people on the ground. And that the original plan broken down because the, the way the German defenses were, uh, worked and the, and the difficulty in coordinating fire support and all that kind of stuff. But there were enough people on the ground that took the initiative that managed to get to the cliffs and get up the cliffs and and so this is on the American side. The British and the Canadians much more much more successful. Uh, variety of reasons. But on the American side, it really boiled down to at the at the at the key time, people took the initiative and exploited the chaos in their favor. And so I think there's I think you know that happens in uh, over and over in um, you know in business too. And so I would encourage if people haven't looked into that, it's something they might want to look into. Uh, the book itself is quite long, but there are a lot of videos that that Talib did. There's a really good one where Talib and Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Another uh, thing that I uh, I resisted for a long time until I actually looked into it and found that what Kahneman was saying and what Boyd was saying were virtually identical. You got those two components, the one with finger-switching their rule and the, and the learning uh, loop. And they fit very nicely into Kahneman's field of uh, um, thinking fast, thinking slow. Because, hey, why is there... Why is there any virtue in thinking slow? And the answer is there's really not. But thinking slow doesn't really describe what he was talking about. Uh, taking your time, making sure your orientation stays more accurately, uh, modeling, unfolding reality. Huh, it's a long phrase. That's really what we're talking about. And that means quickly detecting mismatches. That's the real speed is quickly detecting and understanding of the mismatches. And then testing, making new small little predictions. Uh, even though Talib doesn't like predictions, he still you still have to make you still have to do something. And when you do something, you're essentially making a prediction. Yeah. You're making the prediction that what you're doing is gonna is gonna have uh, the effects that you want it to have. Yeah. Um, and if you decide if you're gonna do one of these one of these you know black swan you know, small 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 all of a sudden big, you're making a prediction that now is the time. This is it. Uh, sort of. Uh, sort of thing so there are and predictions we, going on and those black swan events seem to be happening more often nowadays so it's not like we're immune to them for years and years of stability so yeah, yeah. i really appreciate your knowledge on it mate and i appreciate the knowledge and all the time and what you've done and john's done and everyone's done and what you'll continue to do mate thanks so well, much for helping us much. thanks for the opportunity best of luck to you thanks a lot jet bye for now have a good one now take care There were two key takeaways for me from this episode. The first was the discussion on creating a learning organization, building skills and great habits and people constantly. The other aspect of this that's really important is the learning constantly from customers, creating a system whereby every team and the organization is regularly gaining feedback from customers and learning from this to be able to adapt and improve or act as it is in Udaloo. The second key takeaway for me was the concept of observe and orientate in the OODA loop. And the constant view on this that Chet was talking about with the concept of Japanese military. This links an amazing way to vision and having a clear vision and aspirational goals. Now that vision can create that constant view in a team or a whole organization to allow people to navigate and work in that direction. Chet spoke about the beaches in Normandy for the American forces in the Second World War. You know, it was tragic and tough, and those frontline troops navigated their way through to get to the top of the hill. You know, to me, that those troops on the beach, they had a vision and they had a strong motivation to get there, 
which enabled them to coordinate and move their way up to eventually take the top of those cliffs and we know what happened after that. The third key takeaway from me was adapt and act is the key. Do something, learn and then adapt. Chet mentioned about John where he wasn't too patient with people that wouldn't act and if you read the books on John Boyd you'll hear lots of great stories on that. The faster and better that we can learn and then adapt from, I should say, learn from competition, learn from customers, learn from our people, and then take action to adapt in a way that's going to be sustainable will truly create an agile organization and allow us to move forward and hopefully avoid a black swan event, as Chet called it, if it ever occurs. Thanks again, Chet, for your time and knowledge. Thanks for what you and John Boyd and the rest of the guys did throughout your career. It's created amazing things and truly helped us create a better future. Thanks, mate. Bye for now.